John chapter 14 is where we're going to be. And it's kind of funny. You say John 14 and immediately people's minds will go to in my father's house. There are many rooms, right? Because that's the verse from John 14 that we have most memorized. But that's not actually where we're going to be. Go down to verse 15. All through John 14, 15 and 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the things that are most important before the cross. This is one of his last long conversations he has with them. And like anybody, the last thing that you have to say is if you have a choice, if you have a choice, the last thing you say to somebody is important. If this Mother's Day, if if it's the last five minutes, if you're from out of town and you come to visit your mom in those last few minutes, sometimes those last minutes become, you know, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, because you keep remembering, oh, I wanted to talk to her about this. Uh, my mom teases me that my, all my long conversations are in a parking lot because you think you're done and you go. And then in the parking lot, you think of 16 more things to talk about. And that's just the way we work. In fact. Last time we went to San Angelo, we're going this afternoon. There won't be a small group here tonight, by the way. Um, last time we went to San Angelo to visit my mom, I think we were in the parking lot at Henry's Diner, which is like my family's place. Uh, we were at Henry's for at least another hour and a half after we left the restaurant. We've been in there a long time. I don't remember how many hours we spent there, but we do that. And sometimes we move that conversation on from... Henry's to the Henry's parking lot to another hour and a half at a coffee shop after for the so you can caffeinate it for the drive home. But then you're at the coffee shop so long you have to buy another coffee to go with you in the car. That happens to us. This is what Jesus is going through in John 14, 15 and 16. Really incredible, deep, important truths that he wants to share with them in those last moments. So let's read them together. This will be from the NIV. And I apologize. I I completely blanked out on the uh, version app today, so it's not in there. The outline's not in there today. John 14, 15 to 21. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live in you. And you also will live, or excuse me, because I live, you also will live. I'm jumping ahead. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So again, last bit of time he has with them all gathered together before the cross, he wants them to know they will never be alone, ever. If there is an epidemic in our world at the moment that's only been made worse by the events of the last few years, it would be loneliness. It would be that sense that nobody is there for you, nobody is there with you, that there is a sense of isolation. And people can be in a room more crowded than this and feel that and feel the dread of that and not feel that they have anybody who is with them. So you can understand why Jesus would think that it was the most important thing he needed them to know, that as he left to go and to be again with the Father in heaven, that his disciples left to accomplish what he wanted them to accomplish, were going to struggle with that too that they would struggle with 
But the guy who who taught me and the guy who trained me and the guy who always knew the right answer when we didn't have a clue, that guy is gone. And he says, no, I'm not. I am, but I'm not. I won't be visible here with you. I won't be right here in the flesh, in the incarnation with you. But I will always be with you. That's part of the Great Commission, isn't it? When he tells us to go into all the world and to preach the truth, what does he also say? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It was so important that in his last long discourse, he started with it. And it's so important that in some of his last words before the ascension, he ended with it. I'm with you. I'm here. But that's not even all he says. So we're going to look at the rest of what he says this morning. I've said this already, that these are the important words. I'm going to flip right past this. And we're going to go to sophomore year in high school for me. You might have done it freshman year. I I chose my own schedule because we could do that sort of thing back then. We chose our, in my high school, we chose our schedule. We chose our teachers. We chose everything in all of that, uh, just like you would in a university. And it was really kind of fun that way. They were kind of prepping us for that. So in my sophomore year, I had put it off and not done it as a freshman. I took geometry. I'm curious, just out of total curiosity, this is not important. How many of you love geometry? Anybody? I got a couple of hands. Is that real? Like maybe three? There might have been four, if I'm generous. How many of you love algebra? I'm doing research, by the way. There are more hands who loved algebra than geometry. We will pray for you. There are two kinds of people in the math world. It seems This is just my own personal observation. This may not be true, but my observation has been there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who love algebra and those who love geometry, and they generally are not the same people. Uh, and I think it's because of how you conceptualize those things and how you work through the logic. Geometry is, they're both very logical, but geometry is better organized. That's the way I see it. And uh, you still have, somebody spilled their alphabet soup into your math, but it's, it just, it makes sense on a page. Now, it might, it might, you know, it comes down to personality and stuff. I was taking architectural drafting at the same time I'm taking geometry. It just all made sense, right? Because that works together. Anyway. I didn't use algebra until I started trying to take a preacher count at a church event. That's when you do algebra. Yeah, that's why it's always so off. Um, anyway, sophomore year, I had at Central High School in San Angelo, I had Betty Ford as my geometry teacher, not the Betty Ford. I have all these people in my life who have names of people you think you know, but they're not the people you know. I got Abe Lincoln, who who was one of my teachers at Sunset. I babysat took care of an aviary uh, full of cockatiels for George Bush, but not either of the George Bushes that you know. I had Betty Ford for Matt, and there were a few others like that. It was kind of weird. I think I knew a Kennedy or two, but they weren't real either. Uh, I mean, they were real, but they weren't. They they were the one. I don't want to worry you or anything. Anyway, Betty Ford uh, was a great teacher and really kind teacher and really good. And in her class, a lot of people struggled with the if-then statements, I, probably because we're all Americans and we're just not that logical. Uh, but they struggled with the if-then statements. I loved them. I liked it. It was nice and organized. It was neat. It made sense. It made sense of things that otherwise didn't make sense, which is its purpose. And so you would do these logical if-then statements. If P, then blah, then Q, then blah, all that kind of stuff, right? And they're all conditional things and propositional things. And I like that. And I know that to the to some people in the room, they're, whoa, 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 whoa. that's fine. You just hang with me here. I'll, I'll make it clear. Uh, but 
in his, in his statement, in his paragraph here, Jesus uses this kind of thing to explain his promise of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's interesting. It's the opposite of what we would expect. The world thinks of the Spirit, and I say the world, I really kind of mean the Christian world, but we think of the Holy Spirit a lot of the time as a touchy-feely thing. It's just this nebulous, experiential, feeling sort of a thing somewhere in between when you've had an Allsup's burrito and when you've had ice cream, right? We, we're very subjective about it, and sometimes we blame the Holy Spirit for what the ice cream and burrito caused, okay? That's what I'm saying. We do this because we, we can be really subjective. However, when Jesus lays out his promise to the disciples of the Holy Spirit, he uses if-then statements. He uses logic and he uses rationality. Does that mean the Holy Spirit is totally logical? No. But is the Holy Spirit logical? Yes. Why? Because God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one in divine nature. And who invented all that math that you don't like to do? Math is just the observation of the laws that God created the universe through. He created math. That's why people were really into it. I am not one of those. I'm a word person, as you might have guessed. But uh, that's why people who are really deep into math will use words like beautiful, fascinating, words that the rest of us would go, math, beautiful, you ain't seen my report card. Unless red's your favorite color, then maybe math is beautiful, right? But it is in its own way. And so when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he's not, he doesn't always talk about the Spirit the way that we do. Uh, we refer sometimes to the Spirit as it. Ban that from your vocabulary because Scripture never does. We aren't talking about a thing. We are talking about a divine being. And so... He refers to the Spirit in those ways. And he does talk about him logically, rationally. Like, you can understand why the Spirit does what he does. And we would say, oh, no, the Spirit is, and we'll quote Jesus, Spirit is like the wind. It's just a, how do you go and know what it did? Well, actually, Jesus is very logical and rational about that. You know how he explains how you see what the Spirit does? He says it's just like the wind, not in a nebulous sense. Jesus says it's like the wind in this way. You can't visibly see the wind. I have some manufactured wind happening right up here out of this vent. And when I step right here, I'm comfortable. And when I come up here, I'm not, you know, but because I can feel the effects of the wind. Jesus says that's the Holy Spirit. It's actually logical. That's not touchy feely. He says you look for the Spirit's fruit. You look for the outcropping of of his actions, and you can see the Spirit plain as day when you tune in and pay attention to how he moves by seeing what the Spirit is doing. And that was Jesus' explanation. It's actually very logical. If this is happening and it's a work of the Spirit, and you know this is what the Spirit does, then what have you just seen? The Spirit. That's simple. That's why when you read Galatians, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. When you start seeing these things increase in your life, what do you know? Spirit's been working on you. He's doing what He promised He would do. And you can honestly, confidently say, the Spirit is at work in my life because I'm finding more joy. I'm finding ways to be more kind. I'm dealing with things 
with more self-control. You don't take credit for that because you didn't do it. Who did it? Jesus said, well, what wind blew through there? The Holy Spirit. So it's actually really quite logical and rational. So, oh, here you also do this stuff in grammar, right? And I want to encourage you. This was what this says right here. I want to encourage you to kind of sit down with this passage on your own. We're not going to go through it phrase by phrase and everything today. But go through this passage on your own sometime this week. And and just write, make up how you do your chart. You can do it the right way, the, Mrs., the Betty Ford way, or you can do it your way. I don't care. Um, but sit down and just make a chart of where Jesus says if, or uses a phrase like that, then this will happen. If this is present, then this will be the promise. If you do this, then this is what God will give you. Because they're packed in this little conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. And they matter not just for a moment or a day or a sermon. They matter for our eternity and how we live our life for God's purpose in the here and now. Maybe you just want to write them down and do the line thing here. Look for what the hypothesis is and look for what the conclusion is. And just figure out what all those propositions and conditions are in what Jesus has to say. We'll look at a couple In verse uh, 17, let's read this again. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 17. I'm going to start, uh, and it says, The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Did you notice how he worded that? He lives with you and he will be in you. Did I not put this on there, or is it the second one? No, I didn't put it on there. But I'm putting it on there now. What does he say is going to happen? With you. But where is he going to be? In you. Pay attention to that because we're going to come back to that here in just a moment. In verse 15, if you love me, if, if then statements, if you love me, then what will you do? What should you do? Keep my commandments, he says. Now, this one we struggle with. Why? Because we're Americans and Texans. And we just don't like the idea of somebody saying, if you love me, you have to do something. We fight that. Well, if you love me, I wouldn't have to do anything. Right. We want unconditional love for everything, for everything. And love doesn't actually I'm going to step on toes. Love doesn't work that way. Yes, if it's real love, it's unconditional. Hooey. It's hogwash. You know who says that people who want to get away with something and they don't want you to hold them accountable. That's the truth. Marriage is not unconditional love. Marriage is built on promises made in a covenant in front of witnesses on earth and in heaven where you say, till death do us part, I will be faithful. That's an if-then statement. You know why it's if-then? Because if you don't, did she kill you? Okay? It's all in there. If you write your own vows the right way, it's in there. Okay? Because it is conditional. We say, oh, no, pure love is uh, you're going to love no matter what happens. But that's not actually true. We want that because, again, we mistake grace for permission and we just think you ought to love everything that I do. No, you don't. There are right ways to live and wrong ways to live. Love is not blind to that. There are right ways to treat the people you love and wrong ways to treat the people you say you love. And love is not blind to that. Holiness is not blind to the unholy and the ungodly. 
And there are conditions. And as Christians, we know that we become children of God by faith and by grace, and that that faith and that that grace is not unconditional. There are all kinds of conditions within that relationship. First John says, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not of God. Actually, he says you're an antichrist. How strong a language is that? So that becomes a what? That's a condition. I can't call myself this if I don't believe that. If I don't, then I'm not. It's that simple. And it's all throughout Scripture and it's all throughout our relationship with God. You say, well, then where's the grace? The grace is that we've all blown it and he still loves us and calls us into a relationship so that within that relationship, which is conditional, we can find grace and find forgiveness and find the strength to live up to those conditions. We aren't earning anything. We couldn't do it. We have already failed all those conditions. So we find the grace to be able to live in the way that God calls us to. It's Mother's Day. There are moms who try to love their kids and they'll say, I love them with an unconditional love. And you know what they mean. They mean I'm going to extend grace and I'm going to love them and I'm going to continue to love them, even though you're hurt, even though. But those mothers carry deep within them the pain of knowing that they have not been able to pretend those problems away. They know that those kids have not always, or whoever in their life has not always lived up to those conditions. Some of you, it's the other way around. Some of you are children of mothers, and you've had to show a ton of grace and work through a lot of forgiveness and work through a lot of things. You try to love unconditionally, but what you find is those broken conditions do hurt no matter what you might say outwardly. And so, what does love do? Well, I just pretend it didn't happen. It's unconditional. No. You work through forgiveness. You work through grace. You work through reconciliation. And it is sometimes work. Now, that can be worth it, right? That can be a tremendous blessing as you work through those things. But it does sometimes take work. Jesus says in our relationship with God, same way. There are things that we will need to work through. Forgiveness, whether it's given or sought. Ways to live so that it's right, not wrong. Holy, not unholy. So, if you love me, he says, if you really love me, I'm going to see this in your life. You're not earning his love. He's saying, if you are going to say that you love me, I'm going to need to see some proof of that. Not because he's being a jerk, but because he's saying, I want you to be people who live what you say you live. So here's what I'm going to see. You're going to keep my commandments. You're going to do the things that I've called you to do, be the things that I've called you to be, and live the way that I've called you to live. Because I'm calling you. One of the first things he calls us to is to be people of integrity who actually walk or talk. So if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. Verse 17. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. 
you also will live. There's a little bit of an in, in, in if then sort of a statement. A little bit different from the first. Because I live, you will live. And so then that becomes a part of our faith and our trust in him. Do I believe that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead? Why does John say that that's fundamental and it's not a, it's non-negotiable in a relationship with God? Because the whole relationship is built on this. Because I live, you live. If he doesn't live, what's the flip side of that? If that condition isn't met, then what? We don't live. If Jesus is still in the ground, we are still dead. If the cross meant nothing, we are still in our sin. He says, but because I live, you live. And this is one of those statements. Again, there's several in here all over the place. Let's keep going. Verse 20. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Do you see what he just did? It's another conditional statement. Whoever, let's read it again. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. It's not the one who sings the loudest. It's not the one who's the most touchy-feely or the least touchy-feely. You know, people kind of fake holiness a couple of different ways. You know, we we think about, well, it could be somebody. I don't know why I picked that voice, but, you know, whatever. You just holy, holy, holy. And then, but that may be genuine. I'm not saying it's not. But we just kind of assume that it's that. And then there's other people, and they are pretty sure that holiness looks like this. I was at a church for a while. The elders thought that people were talking too long as they were trying to get the song service started. We never do that here. But uh, they they thought that it was too long. I've been in a few churches like that. It's a good sign. Uh, And they thought it was just taking too long. So... A couple of the elders decided what we'll do is we'll go up to the front and we'll stand like this. And when we have sufficiently, I don't know, grunted and been cranky, they'll quit talking. And so that's what they would do and they would stare the church down. It actually wasn't all that effective, but it was really odd to watch. Okay, this is really weird for these two men to come up there and, and, and do this sort of a thing. But that was, you know, we're putting on our holy face. You got to get our holy face on. We do that different ways. None of that matters. None of that is what determines. What does Jesus say determines? If you're bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, if you've got proof that you love the Lord, if there's proof that the Lord is living within you, what does He say? You're going to do what I called you to do. You're going to follow my commands. We're going to have to know them first. We have to be people of the Word who know what He said in the first place, or we don't have a clue what it is that He said. But this is what he says. This will be the proof. Look at how you live. Look at how you love people. Look at how you serve people. Look at how you follow his commandments. And that's how I will know that you love the Father, that you love me, and that you love the Holy Spirit. The promise, I almost left it there. The promise is, though, look at that last one. You will be loved by my Father. If you do this, God loves you. And he says, and I love you. And the Spirit's in you. These are all promises from God. They don't become lesser promises just because there were conditions. They just become visible. How do I know God loves me? Well, how are you living for him? How are you loving him? It's a two-way street. He has already shown how he loves you. How do we know that he loved us? That he gave his son up for us. 
to die on the cross for us. He's proven His love. And all He's saying is, that proof runs both ways. You can lay down your life as well. Who remembers Schoolhouse Rock? Some of you are old enough. That didn't, used to be a young thing, right? But it's kind of come back out again. You can see it on YouTube. Schoolhouse Rock. Prepositions. What are prepositions? We talked propositions. Now we're leaving high school and going back to elementary school, fifth grade. We used to have these videos called Granny Grammar. They were hilarious. Uh, I said videos. That is untrue. These were slides with a synced cassette tape. And if that just was wah, 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 wah to you, you're too young to get this. Uh, but Granny Grammar was something. Anyway, Schoolhouse Rock is more familiar. A preposition, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary online, of course, because it's 2023, is a word that shows direction, location, or time. Okay? Direction, location, or time. I'm on the roof. I'm in the building. I'm, you know, wherever. I, I don't want to give you a whole bunch of examples. Around the corner. That's the preposition. And Jesus uses, in his propositions, he also uses a bunch of prepositions. And he uses them over and over again, and they're transforming. And I want you to catch this. This is subtle within the text, but it's, it's visible throughout the New Testament. You can see this all the time. So I'm going to go back to this text again and show you something. If you love me, verse 15, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. Now, in this language, it's not so much a big deal that the Spirit is going to be with you. That's what they normally would have heard. That's the preposition they're used to. The Spirit is with him. The Spirit of the Lord fell upon him. But those are all a bit external, aren't they? If somebody is with you, they're over here. You're in two different places. It tells you direction, location, and time. The direction is with me. The location is by me, somewhere close, because they're with me. But he changes the Spirit's location. Let's keep reading and you'll see what I'm saying. So, uh, verse 16, I'll ask the Father. He will give you another advocate to help you and he will be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be. Check out the preposition. In. Is that a minor change? That someone goes from being with you, they're in the room, to living within you? Do you see what he's saying about the intimacy of your relationship with God when you have shown your love for him by listening, following, and doing what he calls you to do? He says when that happens, the Spirit goes from being around to within. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, the language is almost always exterior language. Almost always. With, among, around, those kind of words. And then, after Pentecost, and after this conversation, everything changes to within you. It's transformational, this language, of a relationship that we have with Him. And everything goes within. It's an incredible change that I really hope that you get because it's huge. God is not near you. When you are a child of God and when you are a believer in God and when you are obedient to God, he says, I have given you my spirit to live within you. That's the promise of Pentecost. Acts 2.38, he tells us to repent and to be baptized. 
And he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he comes to live within us. And what word did he use back in 15 and 16? Forever. Forever. Completely changes everything just because of simple words like with versus in. Here I've highlighted it and put it into kind of a, an, an if-then thing. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Because he comes back around to it again at the end. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father. You ever question whether or not you're loved? There will be people today who question whether or not their mom loved them. Father's Day is coming up. There will be people who question whether or not their dad loved them or was proud of them because some aren't real good at communicating those things or showing them in other circumstances. Do we have to have that worry with God ever? No. Because if we love Him, if we trust Him, if we're following what He says, it's a given. It's a promise. It's as sure as His very existence. He loves you. And you never have to question that. Ever. And He even gives us His Spirit to live within us, to work and show and prove, I love you so much, I have given you a part of me to live within you, and you are never, ever alone. God loves you so much that he has taken up residence within you so that he can renovate your heart and your soul so that you can be reflective of his glory in the way that you love one another. That's an incredible promise from God. And we can hold on to that every single day. And this was one of the last things Jesus wanted all of us to know. It's that important and it's that big.